Hey everybody, good morning and uh, welcome to Christ Community Chapel. Really, really glad that you're here if you're worshiping over in East Hall. Welcome, or if you are tuning in, uh, welcome. All right, this is uh, the fifth week of our eight-week series on the book of Hebrews. And if you're new and you have missed some of these messages and you want to catch up, you can go to our website and just click on the tab that says Media and Resources. All of our messages are there and you can catch up. Hebrews is this great connector book between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between part one of the Bible and part two. And it told you when we started that Hebrews takes us on a journey from weariness to rest, from alienation to the very presence of God, from isolation to community. But Hebrews says the only way we make that journey is if we fix our eyes on Jesus. And ever since I said that the first week, uh, whenever I write an email, I have tried to finish it by saying, fixing our eyes on Jesus, comma, Pastor Joe. It seemed like a long way, a long thing to write at the end of every email, so I thought about abbreviating it and just saying, fixing our eyes, comma, Pastor Joe. And it struck me that's really what I need. I need God to fix my eyes. And the way that I look at circumstances or situations or people, and the only way that God can fix my eyes is if I look to Jesus. And so that's what we have been trying to do in this series in this eight weeks. All right, and Hebrews helps us to do it by uh, comparing Jesus to other things and other people and showing us how Jesus is greater than anything or anyone. The first week, we looked at how Jesus is greater than the prophets, then Jesus is greater than angels, and then Jesus is greater than Moses. And then last week, how Jesus is greater than you and me, and this week, how Jesus is greater than a high priest. How Jesus is greater than a high priest. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, then it, the verses will come up on the screen. If you're over in East Hall, I know it's kind of dark over there. It's even better if you can look it up on your phone. If you have our church app, the scripture will be on your phone in the church app. All right? Okay, Hebrews chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 23 through 28. This is what it says. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is God's word. We've been following the same template each week, and I have three points, and my first point is why a high priest is great. My second point is why Jesus is greater. And my third point is why that's great news. Why a high priest is great, why Jesus is greater, why that's great news. First, why a high priest is great. I've been promising for a couple weeks to explain to you why it's difficult to read the Bible from cover to cover. 
And some of you have probably experienced that where you have made a resolution, like a New Year's resolution, that this is going to be the year that you're going to read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And so the way that usually works is you start in Genesis and you start like a, like a house on fire. And uh, Genesis begins with four great events. Uh, creation, that's Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis chapter 3 talks about the fall, which is when sin enters the world. And just the first three chapters of Genesis explains so much of how you experience the world and life. Because it explains why there's just breathtaking beauty and then there's this haunting feeling like there's a brokenness all around, not just out there, but also inside your own soul, inside your own heart. And then the next two events, we have the, the flood with Noah and the ark, and then the Tower of Babel. And then Genesis goes right into the stories of the four patriarchs, the story of Abraham, the story of Isaac, the story of Jacob, the story of Joseph. Before you know it, you're through the first 50 chapters of the Bible, you can check off the book of Genesis. And you head into Exodus with a full head of steam. And Exodus is all full of action, so it's great. There's the burning bush, the rescue from Egypt. Let my people go, Charlton Heston. You got the, the drama and the special effects of the ten plagues. And Exodus begins to slow up toward the end, but you make it through the 40 chapters of Exodus, and you're 90 chapters into the Bible and feeling great, and then you hit Leviticus. And Leviticus is, the, is kind of the graveyard of all Bible reading schedules. It's, uh, it's the place where all good intentions go to die. And the reason is because Leviticus isn't just uh, boring, it's confusing. Every page, every chapter in Leviticus seems to have a bunch of rules about how to be clean, how to approach God, how to make sure you're ready to worship. And almost all of it is physical. There's way too much information about bodily discharges, <laughs> about open sores, about hemorrhages, about diarrhea, about infection. You want to know why? Why all this disgusting stuff? There's a novel by uh, Oscar Wilde. It's called The Picture of Dorian Gray. It's a fascinating book. Dorian Gray is a man who is uh, wealthy, he's handsome, he's debonair, he's charming, but he is not a good person. He is a cad. And he has a, uh, a portrait painted of himself, and there's a kind of a magical quality to the portrait. And what happens is when Dorian Gray goes out and he does something particularly despicable, when he comes back and he looks at his portrait, he sees that his portrait has changed, and he looks worse. And he's, he doesn't like the way the portrait is working, so he puts it up in the attic. And after several years of living in debauchery, he goes and checks on the portrait, and the portrait is just hideous because the portrait shows what Dorian Gray is like on the inside. How great would it be to be able to see that? When you look at somebody and you see them physically, then to be able to see that, what they're like on the inside, if you had a, an app on your phone where you could take a picture of somebody and you could see in the picture how they look physically, and then you swipe and you see what they look like on the inside, what their soul looks like. I mean, that'd be, there'd be some people that you wouldn't want to take a second look at physically, but you take their picture and you swipe and you see their soul and you see something of dazzling beauty. Of course, the opposite would be true, too. You'd see somebody that is beautiful on the outside, but then you swipe and you see that their soul is just despicable. Right? 
I'd love, I wish I had that app when my children were dating. That would have been helpful. Right? You want to know why Leviticus is full of all kinds of rules about being clean, all kinds of things that are physical, is that God is trying to connect what you see when you look at somebody and what he sees when he looks at somebody. And this is what I mean. How many of you, before you came to church today, either bathed or you put on deodorant or you brushed your teeth or you put on clean clothes? If you did any of the four of those things or any combination of the four, would you raise your hand? Good, good. All right, good. If you didn't raise your hand, you could see the people beside you start to kind of scoot away. <laughs> Why? Why do we do that? Why do we want to clean ourselves up before we're going to go see other people? Why would we're going to see somebody who's important? We, we don't want to, to smell or to stink. We try to check ourselves. We try to check our breath. We blow into our hand. Like, or if we are close with somebody, we'll say, hey, how's my breath? <sighs> like that. <laughs> Why? Because we know that there is something, some kind of connection from being unclean and being relationally repulsive. And we don't want to be relationally repulsive so we clean up before we're going to be with people. Uh, when my son was just a toddler, uh, we were going someplace out of town to meet with some people, and he wasn't feeling well. And I was in the passenger seat, and this was before car seats were such a big deal. And uh, I brought him up in front, and he was facing me when he threw up. And he threw up like three gushers. I'm still kind of scarred from that experience. And I, I said, I have got to change before we get to where we're going. And luckily, we had some clothes, but why? Why did I say, I have to change? Right? Why didn't I just say, hey, this is me. This is what I'm like today. This is the real Joe. Genuine, right? Authentic. Why? You know why? If I was covered with vomit and I was out in the atrium and I started to come towards you, you would go, whoa, wait, just stay there. And then you'd say, go clean up first. And then you can come close. You want to know why there are so many rules in Leviticus about being clean physically? Because God's trying to get us to see what he sees. Because uh, sin on your soul is the equivalent of vomit or infection or hemorrhage or anything like that. And you start to move toward God, to approach God, and God says, whoa, wait a minute. Go get cleaned up first. Because to God, you're Dorian Gray. And he sees what your soul is like. They want to know why a high priest is great? <laughs> oh, because one time, one day a year in the Old Testament was a day called Yom Kippur. And actually, Jews celebrate Yom Kippur this coming week on Wednesday. Yom is the Hebrew word for day, and Kippur is the Hebrew word that means to atone. So it was the day to atone, the day of atonement. And this is the way it would work. The high priest would wake up on that day, and the first thing he would do would be he would wash from head to toe, so he'd be completely clean. And then he would put on his priestly garments, which were 
beautiful. They were gold and they had jewels encrusted in them. And he would do a little bit of a morning service. Then he would take those garments off and he would wash again from head to toe to make sure he was completely and utterly clean. And then he would put on a clean linen garment and he would make a sacrifice first for himself and for his own sin. And then he would make a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And that one day, they would feel what it felt like to be clean inside and out. Yom Kippur. It was a great day. A wonderful day. Let me ask you this. What's the dirtiest you've ever been? What's the filthiest you've ever been where you have longed to be clean? Years ago, I was on a mission trip to the Dominican Republic with some students. And we were working in uh, like 100 degree heat, mixing concrete. And we did that all day long. We went back to where we were sleeping. And uh, there had been a blackout. So that meant there was no electricity, which meant no running water, which meant no showers. And so we ate our meal. And then we laid down and tried to sleep. The next day, we did the same thing. We put on sunscreen and we went out and we did our work and we worked with concrete and the 100 degree heat went back blackout, which meant no electricity, no running water, no showers. Four days. We did that every day. Fourth day, we were crusted with that combination of sweat and sunscreen and cement powder and somebody told us about a river. So we went to the river and there were, the river had like a breakwater that was like a four or five foot waterfall. And I sat under that waterfall and let the water cascade over thousands of gallons of water. It was so strong. It was just on the verge of being painful. And I stayed there until every speck of grit was washed away. Yom Kippur. That's what it would feel like on that day. A wonderful day. A great day. But the problem there in the Dominican Republic is I waded out of that river feeling great. It was still about 90 degrees. And on the walk back to where we were sleeping, I broke a sweat. And when I laid down that night and I felt the sweat starting to dry, I felt dirty again. How long after Yom Kippur, before those people began to feel the first stain on their soul, how long would it be for you? Oh, a high priest. Great Yom Kippur. A great day. Feel clean for one day. Great, but what about the other 364 days? A high priest is great, but if you're like me, you need someone greater. And that brings me to my second point, why Jesus is greater. This is verse 24 through 27. It says, But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently, because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. In those four verses, it says that Jesus is greater than a high priest in three different ways. Jesus is greater quantitatively. Jesus is greater qualitatively. 
and Jesus is greater functionally. And I'm just going to kind of touch on the first two because they're pretty straightforward, but I want to talk about the last one because I love the last one, how Jesus is greater functionally as a high priest. But first, quantitatively, verse 24 says, but Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Let me just stop there. So one of the things that it says is the high priest, one of the problems with the high priest is the high priest would die. They had a limited lifespan. And it says that one of the differences with Jesus is that Jesus lasts forever. Well, when, you, when anything increases, and when anything lasts longer, it's an upgrade. And to go from 70 years, which might be the average lifespan of a high priest, to forever, which is Jesus' span, that's a huge upgrade. It's a huge quantitative upgrade. So Jesus is quantitatively better. And then it goes to quality, verses 26 and 27. It says, For indeed, it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. It says that the high priest, the first thing he had to do was make a sacrifice for himself. And the reason is because he was like Dorian Gray. Right? When God looked at the high priest and swiped and saw what his soul was like, he saw that he was relationally unfit, that he was relationally repulsive. And so he had to make a sacrifice to cleanse himself, and then he could make a sacrifice for the people. But the difference with Jesus is that when you take a look at Jesus, when you swipe right and you see Jesus' soul, what you see is something that is pristine, that is unstained, that is holy, that is dazzling in its beauty. So Jesus didn't have to make a sacrifice for himself. So Jesus is qualitatively greater than a high priest. But that brings me to the last one, which is Jesus was functionally greater. And this one I love. This is verse 25. It says, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. See where it says to make intercession for them means that Jesus intercedes. It means he represents. If you are making intercession for somebody, you are between them. You're the mediator. If you come up to me after the service, and you say, hey, Pastor Joe, I want to talk to you. I have, I have a friend of mine, and I want to talk to you about my friend, what you're doing. You're, you're interceding. You are representing your friend. You're telling me what your friend is like, so I know. Intercession happens not just between friends. It's the way our court system works. And I've told you this before. You walk into a court of law with an attorney. You and your attorney are connected. You're really the same. Because when your attorney speaks, you speak. If your attorney wins, you win. If your attorney loses, you lose. That's the way the theme of Jesus being our intercessor, Jesus representing us, is a theme that runs throughout the New Testament. In Ephesians, it says over and over again that we are in Christ. We are in him. And he represents us. Whenever I give you that image of Jesus representing you, I want you to make sure you get this right. Because when you come into the throne room of God, when I come to the throne of God where God is judge and he judges the living and the dead and Jesus comes to represent me, 
Jesus does not go before God and say, Father, I know that you are a God of justice, but you are also a God of mercy. And I come with Joe. And we just want to throw ourselves on the mercy of the court. I know that Joe's a pretty good guy. He tries hard. That's not the way it's going to go. The way it's going to go according to the New Testament is this. When I stand before the living God, the one who is going to judge the living and the dead, for everything that we've done, and Jesus represents me, it means that Jesus is going to say, Father, I know that you are a God of justice, and I come to you representing Joe, and you know him. You know he is like Dorian Gray. You know all the stains on his soul. You, you know that alone he is relationally repulsive to you. But I have taken his stains, and I've taken his filth as my own. And the blood that would be required of him, I have given my blood to cleanse him. So he is now absolutely clean. So he's no longer relationally repulsive to you. So you can open his, your arms to him just like you open your arms to me. And in my mind's eye, what I see at that moment is God opening his arms and Jesus turning to me and saying, go. And I will run and throw myself into the arms of the only one I have ever really longed for love. Every time you have longed for love in your life, it is looking for a drop of the ocean of love that you were created for in God. And Jesus makes you able to draw near to him because Jesus is the one who can cleanse you from all filth. But then it goes on. Jesus doesn't just do that. I told you in the Old Testament, when you read Leviticus, you ought to be reading, trying to, trying to think, what is God trying to help me see? How is he showing me what he sees when he looks at me? And in the Old Testament, you'll read, in Leviticus, you'll read about the, the priestly garments. And I talked about them just a little bit. The, the priestly garments were gold. They were, they were dazzling. It, the breastplate would have the treasure of the nation, the wealth of the nation on the breastplate with all the jewels. And in that moment when the high priest takes off that garment and then he washes himself and puts on the linen garment, one of the pictures you're to get is this, that when Jesus cleanses you from your filth, he also takes off his garment of righteousness and he, he cloaks you in that so you become radiant, dazzling. You know, one of the things, uh, the moments I love in a wedding you know, when I do a wedding, I'm usually standing right next to the groom, and one of my favorite moments is when the music changes and the doors open and the groom sees his bride for the first time. And I'll be looking at him, and what usually happens is that his face will flush, and then emotion will rise in him, and you'll see his eyes begin to water, and he'll look at his bride, and he'll just go, wow, why? He knows what she looks like. They've dated for years. Why is it so overwhelming? And the reason is because he's never seen her like that. He's never seen her dressed like, he's never seen her that radiant. You want to know why Jesus is greater than a high priest? Because Jesus says two things that a high priest could never do for you. Je Jesus takes your filth on himself and wipes you clean forever. And then he takes his righteousness and wraps it around you and makes you radiant. 
And now that brings me to the third point, why that's great news. Why that's great news. When Jesus becomes your great high priest, and by the way, that's what it means to be a Christian. You're not a Christian because you believe in God. You're not a Christian because you're a good person. You're a Christian when you realize what Jesus has done, that Jesus has provided a way for you to become relationally acceptable to God by wiping away your filth with his own sacrifice and then clothing you in his righteousness so that you become radiant to God. When you recognize that, you become a Christian. And when you have done that, that can change the way you live your life in three different ways, radically change you in three different ways. It'll change the way you approach God. It'll change the way you approach God. There are two diseases of the human soul that are terrible diseases. There's uh, the feeling of guilt and the feeling of shame. And the difference between those two is you feel guilt for the things that you do, but you feel shame for what you are. And the sacrifice of Jesus takes care of both of those. And that's for the wonder of it all when Jesus intercedes for you, when he represents you. He takes your filth as his own and right, wipes you away of all guilt for what you have done, but he also clothes you in his righteousness, which makes you a brand new person with a brand new identity. So that takes away your shame. That's what 2 Corinthians means when it says, whoever is in Christ, and there's that phrase again, in Christ, is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. It'll change the way you approach God. But when Jesus becomes your great high priest, it'll also change the way you approach people. Whenever we quit fixing our eyes on Jesus, we can't help but begin to look at other people and compare ourselves to other people. And you'll begin to look around and wonder who's smarter than you, who's, who's more attractive than you, who's more successful than you are, because you're always trying to, feel, to try to figure out how you should feel about yourself. But if you fix your eyes on Jesus as your high priest, and you really believe that he has taken you and wrapped you in his righteousness and set you free to run into the arms of the one who you desperately long to love you, if that's true, What's it matter how thin you are? What's it matter how successful you are, how smart you are, when the only one you've ever really needed to love you loves you to the uttermost and thinks you are radiant? When Jesus becomes your great high priest, it will change the way you approach people. It'll change the way you approach God, and finally, it can change the way you approach pain. You know, I've told you that Hebrews was written to a bunch of people who were going through a difficult time. They were suffering. So there's a lot of pastoral kind of notes in the book of Hebrews. And he's always trying to help people deal with pain. And one of the things that causes and exacerbates our pain and our discomfort in this life is when we try to get something or someone to do for us what only Jesus can do. When we try to get something that is not permanent, to do something that we need to have happen permanently. Whether that's to feel love or value or worth or joy. And Jesus comes to us as our great high priest to remind us, to fill us with the hope that only good will last forever, that pain will not last forever because what Jesus has done for us 
last forever. So we fix our eyes on Jesus because only Jesus is greater. Your great high priest. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we uh, come to you now and we are uh, grateful. I am grateful. Uh, I uh, need to be reminded of what you have done. I need to be reminded that only you can deal with the, the guilt and the shame that I feel sometimes in my soul. And you have dealt with it absolutely and completely. I pray that if there's anyone here who has never experienced that, never experienced really being clean inside, and I pray that this would be the day. I pray for those of us who have experienced that. I pray that communion that we take right now will remind us and fill us with joy. Thanks for being a greater high priest, the one we really need. Thanks for being a wonderful Savior. We pray this in your name. Amen.